Welcome to the Richard Blackby Leadership Podcast, helping people take their leadership to the next level. Brought to you by Blackby Ministries International. So welcome to episode 11 of the Richard Blackby Leadership Podcast. Uh, Richard, it's good to be with you again. Always good to be with you, Sam. Great, and uh, <laughs> hopefully you've you've all got your fill of Winston Churchill. I know you Richard, can never have enough of Churchill. Well, uh, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you haven't uh, listened already, the, the last two episodes of the podcast were designated exclusively to Winston Churchill and uh, some of the leadership points that you can gain from his life. Richard, we did get a question from a listener. Uh, It says, how do you deal with or process groups or organizations who claim to be on the right side of history, but who have no metric for such a claim? Well, that's an interesting question. I appreciate uh, when uh, listeners send those in to us. To say that you're on the right side of history, you need more than a year to evaluate that. (laughs) Sure. And there's some of the huge societal changes going on right now. Yeah. That, for instance, the whole gender issue right now, where now it's there are people saying you shouldn't even encourage your little uh, boy to necessarily uh, act like a boy, dress like a boy, let him decide when he gets older. Yeah. Uh, or same-sex marriage, for instance. Those kind of issues are traditionally that for I mean for thousands of years in society that has not been how society has functioned. It's only in the last decade or two that uh, that has become legalized and promoted and celebrated in, by segments in society, and they argue that they are on the right side of history. Well, if they mean to be uh, gracious and uh, tolerant of people who are different than the mainstream, that is the right side of history, that we've learned that uh, for generations, to be kind to people you don't necessarily agree with or have a different lifestyle than you. But, for instance, to say uh, that two men raising a baby or two women raising a baby is exactly the same, exactly the same benefits as a man and a woman raising a child. Well, you can't really say you're on the right side of history with that yet because there's just not enough data yet. We haven't, yeah. Those kids have not grown up and become healthy, functioning uh, secure adults yet to say, yeah, the results are the same. So when people say we're on the right side of history, oftentimes there's an emotional element to that where they emotionally they feel like they're on the right side. But you need history to take place a little bit before you can determine that history is on your side. Just because you make an emotional decision that feels right to you does not mean history necessarily is has proven your point yet. For that, you have to be able to look back on history. Yeah, uh, and so, so, uh, so that's not ready to say necessarily on those cases that history has proven one way or the other yet. Studies have to be done, and and over time, uh, with a broad base, to be able to say, well, at the time this seemed like the right thing to do, but the results are uh, not showing uh, that and not proving that. So, uh, just to say. Uh, you know, we don't have to get necessarily defensive. We don't have to necessarily wade in and just attack people because, on the other hand, history has not proven that it's wrong yet either. I mean, we may have yeah. theological reasons why we disagree with it. We might have moral reasons, scientific reasons. We might have a number of reasons why we would say we don't agree with something, 
but just in the same way, history is not demonstrated. Uh, history is not yet weighed in. Hmm. So uh, to say history is on your side, you have to have some history is yeah. the bottom line, I think. Well, that's good. Well, yeah. we, we appreciate the question and uh, just keep sending those to us and we'll try and get to those as, as often as we can. So now we want to introduce a new segment that we're going to try and do once a month, what we're calling Leadership Book Review. For the next one, we'll alert you to, to what book we're going to do in advance so that perhaps you can read it too and uh, maybe submit questions to us, podcast at blackabee.org. You can email questions or comments or your own thoughts on books we'll do in the future. Uh, but this week, uh, Richard, why don't you tell us what book we're going to look at today? Great. And Sam, I, you know, I'm always being asked by people to recommend leadership books. People, yeah. people are always saying, well, what's a good book? And and so I, we thought this feature would be great because it lets me actually talk about some of the books that have uh, impacted my own views on leadership or that, I, that have impacted just uh, people in general. Uh, and so I thought that uh, we'd start off uh, this segment with a book that has had a great influence on many leaders, and that is Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. Mm. And you can always tell when books really have an impact because some of their terminology that they introduce starts uh, finding its way into other books, other terminology. You hear a leader uh, speak in a, a speech, and they're throwing around terms that they just assume now that everybody knows because everybody's read the book. And so Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, is certainly one of those. Um, and uh, if you're familiar with Collins, he wrote an earlier book with uh, Jerry Porras called uh, Built to Last. Yeah. And it, that's really, is, is a, it's in a series of books. Uh, there was a book earlier by Peters called uh, In Search of Excellence. Peters really began this genre of looking at um, particular companies that were very successful and then saying, well, what can we learn from these companies? And then Built to Last, uh, that Collins was a part of, he took a, they took a broader view and said, well, let's look at companies who've lasted for over 100 years. Uh, and, and then let's, let's look at how these companies were run and designed so that they could last for so long. And then Collins comes back with good to great, and he basically says, well, there, there's lots of companies that are good, but what is it that separates certain organizations and makes them great? And he identifies a number of characteristics that uh, have become pretty well ingrained in a lot of leadership thinking since that time. And so let me just mention a couple of those. One is he talks about level five leadership. He looks at the CEOs. Uh, he assumes that if you've got a company that has become a great company, then it's had great leadership. And so he zeroes in on the CEO and says, what is it about these CEOs that took their company so far? And interestingly, what he finds is that uh, they aren't necessarily what you would expect. They're not necessarily the larger-than-life type of people. Yeah. Uh, instead, oftentimes there's a humility about them. He says, uh, now, sometimes you'll see a company that where it seems to be all about the leader. The leader is in the news all the time. He's making dramatic uh, announcements in the press, uh, kind of like a Steve Jobs kind of person. Yeah. Or, that, an, or an Elon Musk. Yeah, people that are of... celebrities, you know, that uh, they they just become famous household words like uh, Lee Iacocca uh, certainly was in his day. But what uh, Collins found was that 
they tend to actually have a humility about them. In fact, uh, he has an interesting thing he says that I think is uh, well done in that he says he compares the use of a window and a mirror. Yeah. And he says that when it comes to taking credit for company success, they look out the window onto the shop floor and into the office cubicles and they say, uh, well, it was I had good people working with me. Yeah. It was a team effort. Uh, he, when it comes to credit, they look out the window and see other people and, and pass the credit on. But when it comes to blame, when something goes wrong, then they tend to look in the mirror and tend to take an over uh, amount of, uh, of credit for the blame, and they give away most of the credit for success. Mm. And he said, that leads to great organizations. You have great people working with you. People are inspired to work with you because you're going to give them the credit. Right. I think it was Harry Truman that said, uh, you can accomplish all kinds of great things if you don't mind who gets the credit. Yeah. But if you take the credit, that's one of the most demoralizing things a leader can do. So even if you do, and most of the time, a leader does deserve a great deal of the credit, but you don't need to, you don't need to claim it. Right. You don't need to celebrate yourself. Uh, celebrate others, reward others, and you'll get a lot more success down the road because they'll keep on doing that for you. Well, it also, uh, he has another one, uh, first who, then what, and he emphasizes very much so that uh, in his terminology, you have to begin by getting the right people on the bus. Right, and he says it's not just about vision. Uh, he says you don't you don't really necessarily even come up with a vision first and then enlist people. His concept is you get the right people on the bus. In other words, the right people on your leadership team. And if you've got aggressive, optimistic, visionary, can-do type people on your leadership team, then it doesn't really matter what your vision is. You're going to probably achieve it. But if you've got a great vision, but you've got a bunch of bureaucrats sitting around the table, more concerned about protecting their silo than they are about accomplishing great things, then he says it doesn't really matter how grand your vision is, you're never going to get there. Yeah. So he says uh, that's the mistake oftentimes uh, is that you a great leader sits down with a great vision, but he looks around the, the boardroom table and he has a bunch of people that don't want to take risks, aren't creative, aren't aggressive, don't work hard. And so a great vision just goes down in flames. And so he always says, before you start chasing after vision, get the right people on the bus. And that... That phrase certainly has uh, entered the parlance of leadership Definitely. conversations since then. Uh, he says, confront the brutal facts, yet never lose faith. Uh, he says a lot of companies shield themselves from reality. They don't want to face the fact that they're doing poorly, that they've underperformed, that their vision perhaps is not very compelling, or that they don't really treat their uh, staff very well. Uh, he gives an example of one company that was declining and losing market share rapidly. But whenever their board met, they met in a beautiful uh, wood-paneled boardroom. Luxurious table, luxurious leather chairs, beautiful view. And so when you're sitting there in a, in a room that just exudes luxury and elegance, it's hard to think that you're in a disaster zone. Yeah, You don't realize the panic of what's happening. And so it dulls your senses. Uh, and uh, so Colin said, great companies, they look at the hard facts. And uh, for instance, uh, Jack Welch is famous 
at General Electric for saying, if we can't be number one or number two in an, in an industry, then we get out. Well, sometimes, you know, if you're making slight profits, you're uh, at least moving forward a little bit, you can deceive yourself into thinking, well, let's just stay in this field. We're not the best. We're not even the, the fourth best, but things are going okay. Welch yeah. was famous for saying, okay is not good enough. Let's look at the brutal facts. Can we compete and be number one or number two? But a lot of organizations don't ever really look at their themselves honestly and and brutally to just say, let's put all of our feelings and ego aside and say, uh, is this working or not? And uh, if not, then let's let's make some changes. Another another concept is the hedgehog concept, and he talks about the the, the famous story between the hedgehog and the fox, and he says the fox knows many things, the hedgehog knows one thing, and his point was that um, the great companies knew the one thing they did well, yeah. and they zeroed in on what they could be successful in, what they were the best at what they could dominate a market with, and they, they did that well. And he, he found that many of the companies that floundered, oftentimes they were long-term companies with uh, many different products, but many of their products weren't doing very well, but they kept a lot of different products going. Instead of saying, for instance, if we can make the Model T well for Ford Motor Company, then let's just make lots of them and make them really well. Let's not have 12 different lines. Let's have one line that we can sell thousands and thousands of. Uh, and sometimes organizations are just spread too thin. And they, yeah. they don't have enough punch because they're trying to do too many things. And they do a lot of things poorly instead of one thing well. And uh, so this was, again, a challenge to many organizations to say, what's the one thing you do the best or that you do with the most passion, the most excellence? Uh, make sure you're doing that well before you scatter yourself and try and do a bunch of other things as well. And so he has a couple others, a culture of discipline. He also talks about technology and says technology can accelerate your growth and success, but don't don't put all your eggs in the technology basket. Yeah. If uh, You don't just think that if you have a good website, you'll just have lots of sales and you'll have quality products. Uh, it can help you, certainly. Technology can multiply what you're doing and get the new the word out but uh you don't don't put all your faith and trust yeah. in technology and it's a tool for strategy not not the strategy itself you're right and i've known too many people that just thought from the basement of their home they could just get a good website and maybe some, some social media and, and and certainly can help you but you at the end of the day you have to have a decent product and you have to have some other things as well. Yeah. Well, let's take a break here, and then we're going to come back and look critically at uh, Good to Great. Twice a year, Blackbeam Ministries hosts a spiritual leadership coaching workshop in the Atlanta area. The focus of this workshop is learning how to ask the right questions to help move people onto God's agenda. If this sounds like something you're interested in, the next workshop dates are October 24th to 26th, and registration is open now. The early bird rate is available until September 30th and space is limited. To find out more and to register, visit blackbeecoaching.org. We'll also leave links in the show notes.
So, Richard, we've talked about this book some uh, just in conversation in the past, and, and you're not a, a, a complete fanboy of uh, <laughs> Jim Collins. So what are maybe some weaknesses or some critiques that you might have? Well, Sam, you know, one of the things people will ask me often, uh, what are some good books you'd recommend? And I could recommend Good to Great, but uh, I always want to qualify it and say, but not all of it. It's rare that I'll just say, hey, everything you read in this leadership book is great. You should go apply it to your organization. Yeah. And so oftentimes I'll have to qualify it and say, well, this chapter is good or this concept is good, but just watch out for that and or, or be read that with a grain of salt. And there's a couple of things with good to great I think you really have to be careful with. One is, uh, for instance, the concept of get the right people on the bus. I think generally that's that could be true. I think when you're if you're talking about a leadership team, you want to make sure you've got people on your team that are team players, that work hard, that have a can-do attitude. This is one of those areas where you have to be careful about taking a secular book and applying its principles, for instance, to the church. Because now if you're talking about church staff, you may want to be hiring staff on your church that work well also. But be careful about, sometimes I've known people with, for instance, um, looking at a church where they're talking about getting rid of church members that aren't willing to vote in the right direction or <laughs> they don't support the pastor's vision they've got questions so let's get the wrong those become the wrong people that need to get off the bus and i would say well in in christian circles christ is the one who builds the church he adds members to the body as it pleases him so don't start looking at your church like a bus <laughs> <laughs> and start saying who do we need to get off this bus who do we need to get on the bus there are some things that are in God's hands that are Christ will add or subtract. Uh, I think when it comes to your own team, your own staff, I think you have a little bit more uh, to say there. But even then, be careful. I've known pastors, especially in bigger churches, that if they were hired to be the senior pastor, they just immediately fired all the staff. And they would say, I've got to get my people on this bus. Well, be careful with that because some of the staff that were there, God called them there. And if God's the one who called them there, just because you're the new guy, don't assume you've got to clear the bus out. And uh, Maybe those people that God brought there five years earlier, God intended for you to work with as well. So all that just to say, on, on that front, be careful with that, because you may uh, inadvertently be working against what God was doing, uh, because you're using a secular principle to lead uh, a spiritual entity. Hmm. The second thing is the um, the hedgehog approach. It, it makes sense in one sense, but you have to be careful with it as well. Because, uh, for instance, if you're maybe the the one thing you do well is not necessarily successful. For instance, you might, back in the 1910, 1920, you might have been really good at building horse and buggies or yeah. you know, buggies to go with the horse. <laughs> you didn't build a horse, but. And you did it really well. And so you'd say, okay, now let's not diversify and get into auto mechanics and things like that. Let's let's stick with buggies because we do that really well. Well, well, there are times when what you do well has got to change. You've got to learn to do something else well. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and you have to be careful with this because I've seen sort of post-mortems of companies that fail. And you'll see a post-mortem on one company and they'll say, well, they were too diversified. They needed to just find the hedgehog uh, factor and, and have done the one thing well that they could. But then you see another company 
that did one thing and failed, and then postmortem is well, they should have branched out. They they stuck to one thing too long, and uh, they yeah. went down with the ship. And so, the the problem with that approach is that it it looks like the right principle when it works, <laughs> yeah. and when it doesn't work, then you say, well, they shouldn't have done that. And so I've seen where the exact opposite would have been true. They should have diversified a lot long, uh, sooner than they did. They held on too long to one thing they did well until they became archaic, especially in areas of technology, the way technology changed. If you, if you made yeah. cassette tapes really well and so you didn't branch out into digital, uh, well, then you don't exist anymore. You, you've got to be careful with that principle. But the third one, and I think perhaps the most telling one, is what is known as the halo effect. Uh, there's a book by Phil Rosenzweig called The Halo Effect, and the subtitle is, And the Eight Other Business Delusions That Deceive Managers. And I think that this is a very telling critique of Jim Collins, because there's a, there's a basic approach that began with Tom Peters that says, let's just look for companies that are doing well, and by doing well, we mean growing, making profits, uh, that kind of success. And if they're making profits, if they're growing, then they must be being led well. Then whatever their CEOs are doing must be the right thing. Yeah. And that's called the halo effect. It's, that's saying because they're experiencing success right now, that person must be a good leader. And by the halo effect, it just means that success sort of puts a halo on whoever's leading. It just assumes that they're good. And so, and, and there's been a lot of critiques of Peter's approach because he basically admits that he didn't have any real scientific analysis of the leadership. He just said, okay, your company's growing, you're leading well. What do you, what do, you do as a leader? And whatever that is, it must be good. But the fact is that after he wrote about uh, those particular companies, within a few years, a bunch of those companies had tanked. A bunch of those leaders uh, had been fired. And so you had to ask yourself, well, if those guys were do, doing all the right things, how did they all just go brain dead? Did yeah. they all just suddenly just stop leading well? Or could it be that we jumped to some conclusions about the fact that what they did was good leadership? Well, and the same thing could be said of, of many, if you look at the companies that he, that uh, Jim Collins talks about in uh, Good to Great, uh, the same thing could be said. Yeah. Like, and same with Bill Talas. Who's, who's been to Circuit City lately? Right. And yeah. so it gets a little embarrassing whenever these these uh, authors who sell millions of copies of these books and they highlight these particular companies and they say, now here, this is a well-led, well-designed, well-motivated, focused, visionary company led by a great leader. And then the, the company goes broke a few years after the book is published. Yeah. It, it gets a little awkward. And so... Yeah. And I guess the the... the to be fair, you could always say, well, maybe they stopped doing whatever it was they were doing to be great. Yeah, in the and first that's place. kind of what they have to say. Yeah. Uh, and so, interestingly, when the halo effect is written, that book, um, and, it, and it criticizes Jim Collins, and it says, all these books, Built to Last, In Search of Excellence, Good to Great, uh, they all highlight these, and every time they say, we've done all this scientific analysis, uh, and we found the great leadership qualities of leaders that make companies great. Now, everybody, if you just do what these people are doing, you'll also have the same kind of success. Uh, Rosenzweig says uh, that you can't say that. You, you, there is no recipe for success. 
Yeah. Uh, and of course, the church takes this in hook, line, and sinker. All you, as soon as you have one church that grows and and becomes a mega church, and then that pastor starts having church growth conferences, and all these pastors are flooding to the conference to say, okay, well, they grew a big church, so let's just do what they did. Obviously, that style of leadership grows big churches in our day. So I want to grow a big church. I'll just lead the way they do. If they if they fire all the existing staff and build their own team, get all their own people on the bus, then I'll do that too, and I'll then I'll have a big church. And of course, we, we, we're chasing after success, but but we're not really saying, yeah, if you do this as a leader, then you will grow. You're just saying, well, that church grew, so what did they do? It's always backwards. Yeah. And uh, and so the church has bought into this almost more than, uh, than even secular business has. And so when Phil uh, Roosevelt uh, wrote The Halo Effect, Jim Collins actually had to kind of come back out with another, a sequel, called How the Mighty Fall and Why Some Companies Never Give In. Uh, and, and I really see that book as a response to the halo effect. He, when he's criticized to say, well, hey, even books right in good to great have already gone broke. Uh, so how do we understand this? I mean, was that good leadership after all? So Collins has to come back with How the Mighty Fall to sort of cover himself and say, okay, well, some of those companies I bragged about are already in the the dustbin so and and he'll say well sometimes we we become prideful we, we go from confidence to hubris he says and uh and, and what he's basically trying to say is well they, they stop leading the same way the company let success go to its head when it when it kept to fundamentals like i, I wrote and good to great then everything was fine but what uh, the halo effect would say is there is no recipe for success. You, you cannot guarantee success. And Sam, you know, for instance, uh, sometimes it, it's just luck. It's just when you, yeah. when you come out with a product. If, you know, if, you're, if you're Bill Gates or Steve Jobs and you're coming up with computers and software at the beginning of the computer era, the, the internet era, and you have, I mean, there are other companies that they're certainly not, they, they were brilliant men. But uh, especially in the era of technology, what happens is if you if you come up with a, the first product, if you come up with the first CD or the or whatever the the first is, uh, you're going to look brilliant uh, because you adopted something early and and you build a big company. But then competitors start coming and they start catching up and they start cloning what you've done and they yeah. improvise and come up with some new features. And uh, all of a sudden, people are catching up to you, and you, your lead is diminishing. And so eventually, your company isn't as dominant as it used to be. And it may not have anything to do with your leadership. It may just be that people have caught up. There's other yeah. great leaders out there as well, and you can't dominate the market like you used to. That doesn't mean that you suddenly stop leading well. It just means that your advan- you've lost your advantage. Uh, and so, But we're too quick just to credit everything to good leadership. And so I think Good to Great, all those books are interesting. And of course, I like biographies. So when you examine what some business leaders have done or church leaders have done, it's always interesting to read. But you just have to be careful to not fall into the trap that all these authors like Jim Collins uh, presents to us to say, and if you just do what they did, you'll have the same results. Because I think, uh, and you know, a classic example is with Rick Warren and Saddleback Church in Southern California. 
Rick Warren, his his model was First Baptist Dallas. He loved W.A. Criswell and that huge church in that day. And But when he went to Southern California, he realized, I can't build a church that, the same way it was built in First Baptist Dallas. This isn't Texas. This is Southern California. So he says, I... The way he describes it, he says, I look to see where, watch for a wave, like a surfer. And when I saw a wave of God's activity going by, I just aimed my surfboard to go in that direction, and we took off. And what he's saying is, I looked to see what God was doing in Southern California, and I built a church around that. It was different than what God was doing in Texas. And then he writes and says, um, so if you're trying to grow a church in Iowa or upstate New York or Florida... Uh, don't try to just do what I did in Southern California. Look to find your wave of God's activity and point your surfboard in the same direction. But instead, everybody comes to his purpose-driven conferences and tries to have the same kind of youth program, the same kind of music program, to do everything that was successful in Southern California, assuming that that will give them the same success in Minnesota hmm. uh, or Kansas. And uh, and they we, we just fall into the same trap over and over again. Let's just copy what some other successful person did, and then we'll have the same kind of success. And uh, it just doesn't work that way. And so I think you have to be very, very careful in reading books like this to say, are there some principles about leadership and working with people that are helpful? And if so, yeah, I need to learn from those. But uh, I've got to find my own way, and I've got to learn how to lead and work with people in a way that's successful where I'm placed and where I do business. Yeah, I mean, I think all of that is true. And uh, I think one thing that, that Collins fails to point out is is the importance of, of timing and of luck, in, yeah. in a sense, as well, yeah. that there's so many external factors that uh, contribute to a business's success. And I think the same can be said of our own success. There's so many different factors that... You know, yeah, we need to get down these principles, and I think it's important, like we said uh, on previous episodes, is be the best leader that you can be. And and the tagline of our 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 podcast is taking your leadership to the next level. Yeah, and I think you should do that, but just be aware that there are external factors that that also come into play. And right, you you know, you start a new church and a new community, and you're the first church in that community. You're gonna draw, especially if you do things well and have a great program, but eventually other churches will come in, different denominations and different uh, programming, and you're, you won't dominate the church field like you used to. That doesn't mean you're a bad leader. In fact, it, it takes a different kind of leadership. If you're the only game in town, you can lead in one way and look great. If there's 20 different games in town, yeah. it takes a different kind of leadership to say, so what will our segment be? We can't expect to completely dominate the field anymore, but uh, I can still lead in such a way that we still do a great job, even in this context. And so that, it's, a, it's a good book to be familiar with, and you'll certainly understand a lot yeah. of where the jargon comes from. And I would definitely recommend it as well. Yeah, but just read it. I always tell people, especially with secular books, read the with the secular book in one hand, and the Bible on the other hand, and let God sort of help you know what you can take from it and what you need to be careful about. Well, that's good. Well, I hope uh, those listening, this this has been helpful for you. And uh, we're going to try and do this once a month. And so uh, a month from now, 
uh, we're going to look at another book, and that book is called Execution, The Discipline of Getting Things Done, which sounds like a book. Not about capital punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's written exactly for the type A person that that Richard is. So uh, there's a reason that this is going to be our next book. And it's written by Larry Bossidy and Ram Sharan. And we'll leave uh, links to this book in the description. So uh, you can be reading this, and uh, we'll remind you of it in future episodes. But we're going to dive into that one next. So that'll be our very next book. and we'll So start reading if you haven't read that book already. Yeah, read it now. All right. We'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, review us on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. If you have questions or comments, please email us at podcast at blackbee.org.